we've been talking about community in here for the last several weeks, and I want to recap what I talked about two weeks ago. We talked about loneliness and mentioned that if you want to speed yourself along to the grave, loneliness is a certain way to do that. We think of, we think of things like smoking or drinking or, or not getting enough sleep or whatever it is that we think of that will ruin someone's health. And, or not exercising, for example. And what, what we found out is that some, some uh, actuaries in health department, or I'm sorry, health insurance companies have determined that loneliness is more dangerous than those things that we typically hold on to as the stuff that will destroy your health. And, and, and honestly, I think from a psychiatric perspective, we'll find out that loneliness is kind of the core foundation of some of those other life-controlling issues that can destroy you. And so when you compile loneliness with the things that loneliness produces, it takes people down a very ugly road. And we we are convinced at Daylight Church that loneliness is not the way God intended us to, to, to live our lives, that we were intended to live in community. And we, we hope that we'll be a church community where people can connect with people as a family. And I talked about the mirror neurons, which are not mirror neutrons. I'll run that joke into the ground. And, and that joke's free of charge. One of you got it. Okay, great. So you are genetically designed. It is built into your DNA to duplicate what others are feeling or doing. You find yourself, you, you might find yourself, if you, if you hang out in Scotland long enough, you're going to start to develop a little bit of a Scottish accent. If, if, you, if you hang out with certain friends that use certain lingo, you're going to pick up on that lingo. If, 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 you, if you're with people that walk a certain way, you're going to unconsciously end up walking a little bit different as a result of just watching them. You are genetically designed to duplicate others, and, and it results in things like empathy and community and working together. And so the mirror neurons are neurons that fire when you see someone else do something, and they replicate. So, so if you see somebody else doing something mechanically with their hand, what happens is these mirror neurons in your, in your brain fire, and you may not actually mechanically move your hand, but the same neurons that would normally fire if you moved your hand fire. And it's just from observation. It's just from duplicating the people around you. And it's genetic. It's built into you. And we found out, we did a lot, we talked a lot about loneliness and some of the great song lyrics of all time, like Elvis Presley that said, I get so lonely I could die, and so forth. And we found out that Jesus seemed to say a whole lot about breaking the cycle of loneliness in people's lives, and that the mission of Jesus was built around this idea of community. And there was a moment where Peter, who was one of Jesus' best friends, was talking to Jesus, and his name was Simon at that time, and he said, I'm going to rename you. He says, I'm giving you a new name, and your new name is Peter, which is Petra, which is the rock. He says, your name is now the rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And when we think church, when we hear Daylight Church or First Baptist Church or whatever church, we think of kind of a building where people gather. That's the church. Like you can point at it as you drive down the road. Look at that church. But that's not at all what Jesus meant when he said this word. It's the, the Greek word is ekklesia. And ekklesia is, is a called out community. It's a community that leaves their homes and gathers together. And so when Jesus' response to, to loneliness and to the, the universal problem of loneliness was pretty expansive. He said, I'm changing everything now. I want you guys to come together under one banner, which is the banner of love that I will demonstrate and, be, and form a community. We also found out that neuroplasticity is real and that modern science is proving it, and that means that neurons that fire together wire together, which means if you behave a certain way, if you think a certain way, if you act a certain way over and over and over, you develop what, what some psychiatrists des describe as ruts in your brain. And so if you're, if you're the kind that 
hates the alarm clock going off, and you say in your mind, I hate the alarm clock going off. I can't get up early. I can't get up early. I can't get up early. What happens is those neurons in your brain will wire together, and you can't get up early because the neurons have fired together and wired together so long. But neuroplastic, so if you say, I'm, I'm a hermit, or people don't like me, let's say that. Somebody told you they don't like you, and you've consistently believed for 20 years that people don't like you. So you've acted like people don't like you. Those neurons in your brain have formed ruts. It's just like a wagon going down a muddy road, and it's hard for the wagon to get out of those ruts at that point. Your brain has been hardwired to believe people don't like you, and so you will start to act like people don't like you. And when you act like people don't like you, guess what? People don't like you. And so these, the, this neuroplasticity is, is absolutely, the, the concept of it is transformational. And what Scripture teaches is that you can be renewed, you can be, renewed, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what these, these scientists are showing now, is that you can rewire the neurons that have fired together for so long. You can start to believe that people actually do like you, and in believing people do like you, you'll start to act like people like you, in which case people will like you. And so if you want to combat loneliness, if you've, if you've been isolated your whole life, abandoned your whole life, hurt your whole life, and that's kind of wedged you into a rut, you can still get out of that rut. I have no idea what that was, but welcome to Windows. You can, you can get out of the rut. Your brain can be re-hardwired. And so we, we talked about the song from the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby, where, she, where they say, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And how we believe that the church, the ecclesia of Jesus, this community of believers, is, part, is, is basically God's solution to the problem of loneliness. And you'll, see, you'll hear the word ecclesia throughout Scripture. And you're going to hear some other words as we go on today. But here's, here's one example. It says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So this is, this is John talking about his good friend Jesus. He says, we proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you may have, you may have communion or ecclesia. I'm sorry, this is koinonia. We've, we've skipped to another Greek, Greek word here. Koinonia is the other one that you're going to see. You're, you're going to see ecclesia a lot. You're going to see it in just a moment. But koinonia is this other word that in, in most English translations is fellowship, which my friend Titus Awakushe describes as fellows in the same ship. And so... Throughout the New Testament, you're going to see these words ecclesia and koinonia repeated constantly, and it means communion, fellowship, a gathering of people. And so it says the gospel is there so that you may have communion with us. It says when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, see, in the Western church, we think it's so people go to heaven and not go to hell. That's what you hear constantly. That's, that's, that's going to be said all over the country today. But what this says is that the gospel was there so that people will gather together under a banner in communion with one another. And it says that communion is with the Father and with his Son and with us. And then at the end times, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, the radiant ecclesia, has been prepared. And so the work that Jesus is trying to do on earth now is not individual. It's not about one person becoming more righteous or one person becoming more holy. That's a part of the whole big plan. But the plan of Jesus was that people would come together as a family of sorts. And you'll see in just a moment that it says God puts the lonely into families. That's, that's the solution. This gargantuan problem of loneliness in which the British have now assigned a, a, a cabinet position, the ministry of loneliness, because people are so lonely. The gargantuan problem of it, Jesus desi- decided and designed to solve through the church, through the people. Not through the buildings that you can point out when you drive down the road, but through the people who show up. And then there's this word you're going to see 
it, it, it buries ecclesia and koinonia in Scripture. This, this word appears over and over and over and over and over, and we skip it constantly. We don't notice it. It's in there so often that we pay it no attention when it comes by, and we just kind of breeze past it, and it's Adelphos. And Adelphos comes from the root Adel, uh, which is alpha, which is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. So it's the first Delphos, and Delphos is the womb. So this word Adelphos is the first womb, and what it means is from the same womb. And you're going you're gonna to hear it, you're going to see it all through Scripture. You've seen it your whole life if you've read Scripture and probably never noticed. But in this word, it addresses people as from the same womb. And there's a video from the modern-day soap opera, This Is Us, that I'm going to show you here in just a minute. And if you've watched This Is Us, then you know that you've probably boohooed like a baby, and it just gets you. And this is one of those scenes. But I think it does a really good job of describing what an Adelphos is. So who wants to guess what Adelphos means? Nobody? No, nobody wants to guess what Adelphos means. Adelphos means brother. And I think this is a great clip showing, you know, the, 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 these two were clearly not physically from the same womb, but they were from the same womb. They, they're brothers from another mother. And that's, that's this word that you hear all throughout Scripture, just constantly. And, and it's so constant and it's so consistent. It's about 400 times in the New Testament. It's so constant and so consistent that you eventually just kind of gloss over it and it's just a name people call people. And in some churches, they call you Brother Jim or Brother Jones or whatever it is. And this word brother is just all the way through Scripture. Uh, there's, I, I, I found this really neat app that will allow me to click through my phone and record it for you. So I just I picked two, three chapters or three books of the Bible, three letters in the Bible, and wanted to show you how often this Adelphos shows up because each of these verses I'm about to show you contain it. And you'll see in this first one right here, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. So it translates this to brethren. Or do you not know brethren, brothers? So it depends on which, and it's brothers and sisters, but it just goes on and on. And this is just how many times it appears in the book of Romans. So in the letter to Romans that we've discussed in here, it just keeps going and going. That's how often. And then you go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Look how many times it's in 1 Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brothers. It just, it, it's, it's forever. It just goes on and on and on, and, and I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with how, how long the slide is up there because I'm trying to emphasize just how on and on and on this word brothers, this word Adelphos shows up in Scripture, and we skip over it. We don't allow it to register, but if it's in, that, in there that often, if it's used that often, it must be pretty important. Finally, brothers, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And I hadn't even planned on that being on it. But this is the kind of stuff it says. And it's, it's, it's actually kind of a gender neutral word. It can be translated as brothers and sisters or brotherhood and sisterhood. And so when you think about like the movie Band of Brothers, and I was talking to some friends about when they experienced real brotherhood or sisterhood recently. And, and the military always comes up in that is that, that people who are in the military together form a brotherhood that is kind of forever. That, that, that there's a special bond between people that nothing will ever break. And Jesus designed the church to be that way, and the church is not that way. And so how, how do we make this thing happen is kind of the goal of this, this, this series on community, is how do we make it where when somebody calls, their brother or their sister answers, that that's the kind of family that we formed at Daylight Church. And we can't speak for every church in the country, but we can say to ours, this word is obviously important, Adelphos, koinonia, ecclesia. These are words that are repeated over and over. How do we... How do we make that at our church? Jesus seemed to want to turn this word on its head because 
It's used literally to mean brother from the same mother or sister from the same mother. Uh, but it's also used kind of figuratively to, to, form, to mean family or community. And there's this moment where Jesus was ministering to a lot of people. And the crowd was pressing in all around him so much that he had a hard time getting out of the house. I mean, people were just swarming him. And I'm claustrophobic, and that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. But Jesus apparently could deal with it. And people were just shoulder-to-shoulder people trying to touch Jesus, trying to hear from Jesus, trying to get to know Jesus, to hear his message. And somebody says to him, it says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he says, he says this, he points to his disciples, the people following him. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, these are my brothers and sisters. It's not, it's not the people literally from the same womb. It's people figuratively from the same womb. It's people under the same banner, the banner of God, the banner, the banner of Jesus and the banner of his message. He said, this is my family now. And it's, it, it, it breaks down the hardest thing we can ever imagine giving up. We used to do surveys at Murray State University, and, go, and we did one on, on happiness. We just did like these video interviews on what does it mean to be happy. And people would usually land on somehow on the word contentment. They would say somehow it's being content in your circumstances. So it's not having perfect, perfect circumstances, but it's having contentment within circumstances. And then ultimately, almost everyone we interviewed somehow, some way in that conversation about happiness mentioned family. They said, that's what makes me happy. That's, that's kind of the intrinsic value of life is to have family, to be close to family. And Jesus turns this on his head, on its head. It says, that thing that you hold most dear, I'm trying to create something kind of universal that replicates it. That thing called family that is so important to each and every person. Jesus says, that's what I want my church to look like. And then you start to ask questions like, well, what does family look like that's different from friendship? What does family look like that's different from normal community, and it'll, it'll send you to all kinds of places. The book of James, uh, which we've talked about this summer, I went through and just tried to, with a bunch of ellipses, give a synopsis of James, and this is where it goes. And you'll notice this one word repeated. This is Adelphos. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter trials. The brother in humble circumstances should glory. Do not be, see, be deceived, my brethren. And then he says this. He says, my beloved brethren, be quick to hear, slow to speak. My brethren, do not hold favoritism. See, he says it so often that when we read it, we just skip over it. We just become used to it being there and kind of ignore it. But you, can't, you, can't, you shouldn't ignore it. He says, what use is it if a, brother, brethren, if a brother or sister is in need and you don't help? Not all should be teachers, brethren. My brethren, my brethren, brethren, be patient, brethren, 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 brethren. It's kind of how the thing ends. I mean, it's, it, and it's more good stuff. But the whole time he's saying, Adelphos, Adelphos, Adelphia. Adelphia, these der- derivatives of this word brethren. And so when he talks to the church, he describes it as a family. He describes it as brothers from another mother. And then he uses beloved brethren a couple times. And it's the idea that we are the community of the beloved. We are the community uh, that, that, that God uh, is, is pouring out his adoration in. Everyone is adored. Everyone is loved. But some people come under the banner of love, the beloved, beloved brethren. And we're supposed to be a community, a family. 1 Thessalonians says, For we know, beloved brethren, that he has chosen you. Same words. There's another passage of the psalmist in the Old Testament. says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It says, It's like the precious oil in the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. And that sounds 
We don't, we don't get that because we don't know the context, but typically when a priest was anointed or a king was anointed, they would take a, a flask of oil and they would pour it all over their heads. So, so this was celebration day. So Aaron was the high priest and he was being anointed as the priest. And the beard, it's almost like the dwarves from Tolkien. I mean, Jewish people, they admire the beard. And so, so now the king is being anointed and oil is pouring all over his beard and the crowd's going wild and everything is spectacular. And God has come into our community and it says that's what it's like when brothers live in unity. When people have a fellowship and a community, it's that good. And interestingly enough, this word good is the exact same word that's used all throughout the first part of Genesis when, when God creates the world and says it is good. So when, when God creates light, which we all think is pretty spectacular, uh, you know, for him it's just word, light, and there it is. He says, that's good. When he creates the giraffe, he says, that's good. When he creates trees and land and air that we can breathe and it's breathed in by the trees and breathed out so that we can breathe it again and creates that cycle, he says, that's good. Later on, he creates man and woman and he says, that's very good. But this word good is the same word used by the psalmist right here. He says, it's, 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 it's creation epic level good when people get together and live in unity with one another. So the psalmist says God sets the lonely in families, and this is what we see. Is, you know, we see the clip between Randall and Kevin from This Is Us, and it's a, it's a brilliant name for a show, This Is Us, and that's what the church is supposed to look like. It's, it's not supposed to be This Is Me. This is me coming to church. This is my place. It's This Is Our Place. This is, and, and it changes everything. It changes how you approach church. Why do you even come to church? Do you come to church to, to become more spiritual, to, to get closer to Jesus, to hear his voice, to become more adept at scripture, or, or do you come to invest in a community and to connect with other people? And it'll change what time you show up. It'll change what you do once you get here. It'll change how you volunteer. It'll change what happens when I hand out forms about small groups. You say, well, I have no interest in a meal on a Monday. I have no interest in this. I have no interest in that. And you see what you're doing. You're not playing this is us game. You're playing the this is me game. This is us means we need you to invest in everyone. To form a community requires everyone on board. And so I, I, I want to end this brief section with just three, three or four questions. And I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't want to provide answers today. I just wanted to think about it and kind of get your juices flowing. And how do we do this? How do, how do you form a church? So, so I think of family. And I've got, you know, every family has their bozos in it. Every, every family has some, I mean, some people that you just normally would never eat Thanksgiving dinner with. But they still show up every Thanksgiving. And you still sit across the table. And you still pretend you act like you, act like, you like each other. And there's friction in family a lot of times, but family is a bond that, that I think we all universally acknowledge kind of trumps other stuff. And how do you do that in the church where we can all disagree amiably, where we can disagree and still sit across the table from one another and love one another? How can, how can we develop a, a thing where Sunday mornings, some people get up and think, well, is the sermon going to be good today? If, if it is, I'm going to show up. If it isn't, maybe I won't. That's not family thinking. You're not showing up for the family, for the ecclesia, for the brotherhood and sisterhood of the believers. Instead, you're, show, you're showing up for some different reason. And those reasons might be healthy, but I think the healthiest thing is, is community. Uh, I also want to ask, how important is a sermon? I was telling a buddy of mine a couple months ago or a few months ago, he was asking me about the greatest challenge of being a pastor. And the first thing out of my mouth had to do with preparing a sermon every Sunday. It's just a grind. It's just every Sunday you got to be on your game. And every Monday you got to be back on your game if you're doing it again the next Sunday, if, if you're going to present anything interesting and applicable to people's lives. It's, just, it's a constant pressure, and it's, it's one of the hardest parts of the job. And he said, well, he said, maybe, 
He said, I just don't think sermons are that important. Maybe you're investing way too much time in your sermons. And I've, I've thought a lot about what he had to say, and I think he's right. I'm not saying sermons aren't important, and I believe in the power of the pulpit. I believe in preaching. But that's not what forms a great ecclesia. That's not what forms a great community of people. There's something else. And I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's not coming and listen to a sermon. It's, I'm almost to the point where I would say it's more important that you show up at these groups that we're forming or these service projects that we do or the, the uh, first Fridays of the month than it is to show up here on a Sunday morning. And obviously, my ego and my self-actualization and even my salary determine, is determined by whether you do show up on Sunday mornings. So I don't know what to do with all of this except to say that this isn't the most important thing about Christianity. And if your Christianity starts and ends here, there's something missing terribly. My third question is, what in the world is this? And I have no idea. I saw the picture and I thought, I don't know what that is, so I thought I'd ask. <laughs> and then finally, it's, it's what's so sacred about communion, we, the Eucharist, the, 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 the wine and the bread. And so when Jesus was about to be crucified, he started this ritual that people have followed throughout history since that day. Churches all over the globe today are taking the Eucharist together, where they, and, and they have different views on how it works. And some churches do it every week, and some churches do it once a, a year, once a quarter. Uh, some people do it by literally going out to eat and, and praying with one another. There's different ways to do it. But they call it sacred communion or holy communion. It's a sacrament. It's one of very few sacraments in the Christian church. And so when Jesus established this, we have to ask, why? Like why this, it, 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 it was a breakaway from Judaism. It was a breakaway from the religion prior to something brand new. And what did it ask people to do? It asked them to gather around a table. It didn't ask them to come and hear a sermon. It didn't ask them to read their Bible more. Like his sacred thing, the, the sacred seed that he planted on those last days before he was crucified was all about forming a community of people that love one another and fall under a banner together. There's a Christian artist who was in one of the greatest bands of all time called Poor Old Lou, and his name is Aaron Sprinkle, and he wrote these lyrics. He says, now that I clearly see you standing next to me, my loneliness has finally found an ending, and these have been the kindest days. What we need as human beings is one another. What we need as followers of Jesus is one another. We, we, we need to get rid of self-seeking, self-loving faith of trying to be fed and fed and fed and get to where we're feeding, get to where we're with one another and loving and serving one another. 